You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Kind of our common practice in RUF to take a semester and to just walk our way through a book of the Bible. And so I, I feel like that's a, a great way to keep Christians honest so that we really have to deal with what the Bible says. We can't just sort of pick and choose the parts we like and ignore the things we don't like. So this semester we've chosen to work our way through the book of Revelation. And if you were here last week, uh, we just kind of got started. We just kind of eased into it. And I tried to pitch to you that the book of Revelation is really the Bible's version of a graphic novel. It comes to you as a collage of images, and the images are intended to reveal something primarily about your present life now, not about something crazy weird that's going to happen in the distant future. It's about your life now, and the thing that it's intended to reveal is this, is that things are not the way that they seem. Things are not... uh, the way that you uh, realize as they really are. And so, uh, as we kind of jump into this next passage in Revelation 1, I want to just kind of begin with a rhetorical question for you to think about as we consider uh, this passage. And here's the question. I want you to think about what it is that you think you need tonight. As you're on the front end of a semester, you're looking down the barrel of 2015, you're, you're looking at the barrel of a new semester with all things that are coming at you and all sorts of responsibilities. The question I want you to think about as we read this and as we consider tonight is, what do, you, what do you need? What do you think you most ultimately need at this moment in your life? With that kind of lingering in your head, let me go ahead and read it. Revelation chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 9. It reads this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus... I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray. And then we'll jump in and look at it together. Let me pray. 
Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us, that you are not a God that is silent, but you, have, you, you are a God that has disclosed who you are to us. And so as we interact with your word tonight, I pray that your spirit would really open up our eyes and unclog our ears and make our hearts malleable and sensitive to what you would want to press into our hearts tonight. So would you be so gracious as to meet us in whatever condition we find ourselves. We will pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to be um, a, a bit more of a Facebook fan than I am now. I think Facebook has become somewhat of like a bulletin board for BuzzFeed and YouTube. But uh, I saw a video that was posted on Facebook a couple of months ago, and it kind of stuck with me. So I'm sure some of you have seen this, uh, you know, video. It's, it's, you know, shot on a phone, and it's the, of this group of people that are hanging out on the fourth floor, like, balcony of a building outside. So there's like, this group of people having drinks, uh, having dinner, and this one guy kind of jumps up onto the rail, you know, like the, the edge, and addresses the crowd. So he's, his back is to the street, which is four floors below him, and he's talking to the crowd, and he says, well, everybody, as you know, um, uh, me and my girlfriend have been dating for a while now, and I think it's time that I ask her a very important question. And kind of the camera shows over to her, and her face is, you know, cupped, and she can kind of, you can kind of tell she's getting excited about what's coming. And he looks off camera, and he says, Bobby, the ring, please. And Bobby is somewhere off camera, and he has the ring in the little case and kind of lobs it to him, but it's a little too high, and so he... He misses and then falls off the building. Everyone screams, everyone panics. Camera rushes over to the edge, and as you look over, he's laying on this like giant pillow mattress thing that says, Will you marry me? Kind of written in big letters all around it. Now, that is a horrible way to propose to someone. And if you are at all interested in doing that, I would highly not recommend it. She did say yes which is surprising, but, um, but I want to ask you a very um, obvious question. And the question is this, why did she rush over to the edge? And here's why she rushed over to the edge, is because she needed in that moment a new perspective on what in the world just happened. Because if she had not moved, for all she knew, what she just experienced was the love of my life just plummeted to his death, Everyone's gasping and screaming. This is a horrible tragedy. This is a horrible moment. But she doesn't stop there. She goes over to the edge and she looks over and she discovers what? That things are not as they seem. And she's flooded again with joy, with relief, probably anger if she's sane. Maybe some anticipation about you know, the wedding to come. But my point in kind of bringing all this up is that I think the book of Revelation is intended to do the same thing, to kind of bring you over to the edge of reality and let you peer over and really to discover things are not the way that they seem. If we were to just sort of stay back and sort of experience our world and our circumstances without looking over, it would look awful, it would look horrible, it would look chaotic and meaningless and out of control. But what Revelation does is it takes you by the hand and lets you peek over and discover there's a lot more going on than you realize. And the way that this book begins, really right here on the front end, is it gives you this crazy, graphic, IMAX HD vision of Jesus to basically just to reveal to you and to communicate to you one simple thing, which is this, is that Jesus is bigger and better than you think he is. 
That's the point of this opening vision. That's the point of this book in many ways, is to communicate to you on the front end, Jesus is bigger and he's better than you think he is. So what I want to do is kind of get into this passage. I think the passage neatly breaks down into three little chunks. The first chunk, verses 9 through 11, is why this vision is here in the first place. Uh, Verses 12 through 16 are what the vision is. And then verses 17 through 20 is, is what the vision does. So those are the three kind of big ideas we're going to look at tonight. Why the vision is, what the vision is, what the vision does. Cool? So let's look at these one at a time. Here's the first thing. Why the vision is. Why does, why does this book begin in the way that it does? And to really kind of understand this, you, you kind of need to go back in time with me. So if you can, join me to the year uh, 67 AD, first century Roman Empire. There is a Caesar, a Roman emperor in charge of the whole Roman Empire by the name of Nero. And Nero is not a fan of Christians. So what he has chosen to do is to systematically do away with them. So this is the guy that would throw Christians into the Colosseum and they would be mauled by lions. Uh, This is a guy that would literally pour hot tar on Christians while they were still alive, have them impaled with huge poles, have them kind of lifted up and plugged into the wall and then lit on fire to be the outdoor lighting in his exterior garden. Literally, I mean, just horrible, barbaric stuff. Peter and Paul were uh, murdered and martyred during this time. Things were really bad. But actually, things got worse a number of years later because another Caesar rose to power by the name of Domitian. And Domitian made a decree that everyone in the Roman Empire had to refer to him as their Lord and God. And Christians couldn't do that. And so what he did, because Christians were um, opposing what he had decreed, was he had 40,000 of them killed. Timothy, who has a a couple of books in the Bible named after him, was beaten to death at this time. And John, who was the author of Revelation, one of the original 12 disciples, he was an old man at this time. Instead of him being killed, he was annexed to this island. He was kind of thrown out on this political prison, like Alcatraz in the middle of the ocean, an island called Patmos. And that's what is going on. That's why he begins in the way he does in verse 9. Look at it. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's where he is when he's writing this and why he's writing this. So think about it like this. If you can kind of go back in time, I think this would feel a little bit like what it would, what it would be like to be a Christian living in a region right now that's been occupied by ISIS. Where you're like, if someone finds out about what I believe, they will kill me. And so you've chosen to follow this Jesus that you can't see and you can't hear and you're horribly confused, you're terrified, and now, now everything is on the line. Now, now the stakes just got really high that if someone finds out your life is over, And you think about this. What did those Christians need in that very hostile, very confusing, very terrible environment? What did they need? What did they most ultimately need? Maybe you think they needed like a superpower to come in and blow up the Roman Empire and free them and protect them. That would have been a good thing. Or you think uh, they needed like Christians to get in the government and rise up and change laws and do whatever. That would have been a good thing. But that's not what God gave them. What they needed was a new perspective, 
a vision to see that Jesus is actually bigger and better, that he's worth it. He's worth losing it all over. And so that's why this vision is. is because that's what they ultimately needed. They needed a new perspective. And if you think about us, before we look at what the vision actually is, put yourself in the same situation. What do you think you need tonight? I know some of you... Um, Maybe not in the same exact level of confusion as these original first century Christians, but some of you feel uh, a sense of confusion that you've come to UT and it hasn't been everything that you thought it would be. It hasn't been this awesome experience like everyone hyped it up to be and you're like confused. Do I need to transfer? Do I need to go somewhere else? Or maybe if I get a fresh start, things will be better. What do you think you need? Some of you have come off the holidays and it's been really, it was hard to be around family. It wasn't this kind of wonderful, you know, cheesy television movie Christmas experience. It was really hard. It brought up a lot of old wounds and you felt like my family doesn't get me. My family doesn't understand me. I've never felt more alone than being at home with my family. And you think, what do I need? Do I need distance from them? Do I need boundaries? Some of you are looking down the barrel of a new semester and you're thinking, man, I'm really... I'm really excited to kind of get my act in gear. This semester I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read. I'm going to exercise three times a week. You think, okay, what do I need? Do I need more discipline? Do I need just more willpower? Whatever it is that you think you need tonight, this passage looks at you and it looks at me and says, what you really need in an ultimate sense. I mean, those may be true. You may need those things. But what you ultimately need is to see that Jesus is bigger and better than you think he is. So that's why this vision is. But okay, let's, let's actually look at what it is. Because it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually look at it. And so let's, let's get into kind of the nuts and bolts of it. If you look at verse 12, John has just heard this voice. And he turns to see what in the world it was. And the first thing he sees are these seven golden lampstands. We'll talk about what in the world those are in just a minute. But among the lampstands, he sees someone like a, quote, son of man, wearing this sort of priestly royal robe thing. Now, for us, the phrase son of man, we just think it's, he's like a son of a man, which means he's just a human. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a Bible word for he's a dude. Uh, but son of man is sort of a technical term in the Bible. It's an Old Testament term taken from the book of Daniel. And if you were to go back into Daniel chapter 7, you get this vision of this glorious towering, staggering figure called the Son of Man that's presented to God. And God looks at him and says, all authority and dominion is going to go to you. Which means every nation on the planet owes you their allegiance now. So it's really interesting when Jesus shows up That's his favorite way of describing himself, son of man. And we think that means that was referring to his humanity. But what he's saying is, I am this glorious towering figure from the book of Daniel all along. I'm the emperor of every emperor. I'm the king of every king. And you look at Jesus at the time and you're like, dude, you're a homeless peasant. You're a blue collar worker. There's nothing regal, nothing royal, nothing powerful about you. And even there we see, okay, things are not as they seem. Because this vision is is peeling back the layer, peeling back the veil, and letting you see Jesus for who he is, with all of his glory and all of his beauty. So let's just look at this this description with me sort of uh, bit by bit. And just by the way, this is not a description of what Jesus literally, physically looks like. Again, remember, this is all symbolic, creative imagery to create an impression. 
So let's look at it one at a time. Verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Again, this is an Old Testament description of God himself. He is eternal. He is divine. Same description as the ancient of days. Next. His eyes were like blazing fire. Meaning, he doesn't just look at you. He looks through you. He can see all your secrets. He can see all your shame. He can see everything that you're hiding behind. Now, I always picture the, like, the big eye in the Lord of the Rings, that big kind of creepy thing that like, looks everywhere. I like, can see everything. Something to think about. A little spooky Lord of the Rings Jesus eyes. But um, All right, verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. Again, Old Testament description in Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it has these images of these different kings and kingdoms that were described as these giant statues. But in all of these statues, the feet of the statues were made of clay, which meant that they were, they were weak. They would, they would topple under their, its own weight eventually. But here you have a king and a kingdom whose feet are made of solid bronze, like firm, invincible, immovable. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I don't know if you've ever gone hiking where there's a waterfall on the trail or maybe sort of off in the distance. You kind of hear it as you're getting closer to it, sort of that distant roaring sound. And as you get closer and closer, if you get kind of right up next to a big you know, waterfall, you, you, don't just, uh, you don't just hear it after a while. You feel it. You feel it like in your rib cage. And what this is saying is Jesus' words... His voice is so powerful, you don't just hear his words, you feel them in the gut of who you are. Keep going, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, meaning Jesus controls every square inch of the universe. He is overseeing every square inch of the universe. Last, out of his mouth, sorry, second to last, out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Out of his mouth comes the sword. Which shows you that Jesus is this conqueror, but his weapon of choice is his word. His word is what slays you. His word is what does surgery on you. His word is what carves out the poison in your life. And then last, his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. I mean, John's like, the best way I knew how to describe Jesus' face, it's like staring at the sun in the brightest part of the day. Glaring, brilliant So, man, you stack up all of those images, and what do you get? You get this collage of someone who has earth-shattering power and jaw-dropping glory. I mean, you get this vision that Jesus is bigger and he's better than you think he is. That's why the vision is. That's what the vision is. But, okay, some of you are sitting here and going, okay, that's interesting, it's a little weird also, but okay. But I've got class tomorrow, and I've got like, a, like people to hang out with. How in the world does this creepy, weird, apocalyptic, acid-trippy vision of Jesus do anything in my life? Like how does this actually like trickle into my day-in and day-out existence? Well, I think that's an important question, and the text answers it. Because it doesn't just show you why the vision is and what the vision is. It shows you what the vision does. So starting in verse 17, let's look at it. And it does three things. The first thing that this vision should do for you tonight, if you will let it have its way with you, is that it should arrest you. It should stop you in your tracks. Look, look at what happens with John. John has this encounter 
with the white, hot, searing holiness of Jesus. And what happens? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, John is so undone by this, so exposed by this, he just like passes out on the floor, just drops. Now, why does he drop to the ground? I think it's because he feels so seen, so exposed in light of the glory and the light and the brilliance of Jesus. I mean, think about it like this. Um, I remember when I was in middle school, I went down to my um, mom's bathroom for some reason, and uh, you know the, the whole wall was sort of like the mirror. And she had a counter there with, um, I guess, like a makeup kind of, I, I don't know if it's a vanity mirror or whatever it is, but it was one of those things that like looks up super close and has like the 180-watt light bulbs all around it. It's just like, you know. And so I remember looking at myself in the main mirror and thinking... I look, I look pretty good, not going to lie. You know, I'm checking myself out, working those eyebrows, and then go down to the makeup mirror where you get that up-close, bright, like, look at yourself, and you're like, oh, gosh, like, do I have that many blackheads on my nose? What is that over there I never even saw before? It's just like, you're like, oh, turn this off. Let's, let's keep it in here. You just look, you look ugly if, you've, if you're honest with yourself and you're, you're scared of yourself. And um, I think that's what it's like. It's easy to feel good about yourself in certain settings, but when you get in front of the white, hot, searing holiness of Jesus, you're unmasked. You're exposed for what you really look like, for who you really are. And the, the picture is actually horrifying, if you will let it. And what that should do is it should arrest you. It should stop you in your tracks from the way that you typically size yourself up. Because if you're anything like me, what you do to feel good about yourself is you compare yourself with other people horizontally. You look at someone else and you find something about them that you're better than them in that particular way. And it kind of boosts your ego. So some of you will look at someone else and say, I'm thinner than she is. Or you'll look at someone and say, I take my Christianity more seriously than they do. I'm smarter than he is. I'm funnier than she is. I'm more athletic than they are. I get it more than they do. I dress better than they do. Whatever you choose to do, you find something to say, I'm good because I'm comparing myself to them. Now think about it like this. Uh, Probably three weeks ago, I was playing basketball, and I don't get to play basketball very often, so this was a fun, rare occasion, but I was playing with some friends, and let me just be honest, I'm just going to toot my own horn for just a second. I was crushing it, just crushing it, like driving through the lane, and suckers couldn't handle it, and uh, I remember one dude was driving, one dude was coming in, it's been a long time since I've done this, where I just, hello, threw the ball, just smacked the ball to half court, and um, made me feel good about myself. Let me get this back on. Getting too wild with the gestures. And uh, so just crushing it, throwing stuff to half court. People couldn't stop me. And uh, I should tell you, I was playing against four-year-olds. This was uh, some, these were some friends of mine. But I'm telling you, we was at a birthday party for these kids. These four-year-old scrubs could not handle this. So it's easy for me to feel good about myself when I'm, you know, crushing four-year-old scrubs. But if I were to, you know, play in like three seconds of an NBA game, I would be broken. Like they would hurt me and it would be embarrassing and they wouldn't even sweat. And so my point is, look, 
you can feel good about yourself when you do the horizontal comparison because there's always someone cooler than, you know, you're always cooler than someone else. You're always thinner than someone else. You're always smarter than someone else. But when you compare yourself to Jesus, when you do the vertical comparison, it should blow apart your deluded self-assessment of yourself. Because who you see who you are in light of his glory and his holiness, it should undo you. And so my question for you tonight is this. Has, have you had that experience where you've encountered the, G, the Jesus of the Bible in such a way where you just feel undone? Where you feel like there's, there's nothing good in me that I can offer this God. Because when you see yourself in light of who he is, you know, what that should do, it should show you there is a sewer. There's a sewer running through your heart. Where you see yourself in front of Jesus and say, man, I'm soaked through to the core with pride and with fear and with unbelief and with doubting and with anger and bitterness and jealousy and envy and greed and lust. And I feel so entitled to my space and I feel so entitled to my time and to my stuff. And you see all that in light of Jesus and you're like, dude, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. So the first thing this vision should do is that it should arrest you. It should stop you in your tracks. It should undo you. But that's not all it does. Second thing this, it should do is that it should comfort you. Comfort you. I think my mic died. Mike, Mike died. Mike died. Y'all can, y'all can hear me though, right? Yes. Okay. I'll just project. So, second thing this should do is that it should comfort you. It should comfort you. If you look at verse, um, the, the rest of how verse 17 goes, John is basically passed out on the floor beneath this towering, glorious figure. And what does Jesus do? Verse 17, he placed his right hand on me and said, fear not. Jesus condescends, reaches down very tenderly and graciously, says, you have nothing to be afraid of. You have nothing to be afraid of. Now, how in the world can Jesus say that? Because we've just seen Jesus is unbelievably holy. And John is guilty and sinful and condemnable. Jesus can obliterate him on the spot. But Jesus reaches down and says, fear not. And the reason why he can reach down and say, fear not, is because the hand that reaches down to him is a hand with a hole in it, with a scar in it. The same hand that reaches down and says, fear not, is the same hand that was hung up on a cross. What Jesus does at the cross is he takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our junk, all of the sewer stuff, and has it thrown on him, and he gets obliterated in our place so that he removes the condemnation. He removes the punishment. There's no fear of punishment anymore. And what that means is when you're going through a hard time, if you are in Jesus and your life feels out of control and crazy, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is not God punishing me. God's not operating this tit-for-tat, keeping a score up there and then punishing you for little things that you've done wrong or things good that you haven't done. What that hand that has a hole in it tells you is that you have nothing to be afraid of. If you're going through a hard time, you might not ever know the reason why, but you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's not because he doesn't love you. It removes the fear. And it also removes the fear, really, honestly, of your future. If you're thinking, I don't know what's going to happen after college. I don't know what's going to happen this semester. I don't know what's going to happen with this relationship. I'm terrified about how this is all going to unfold. That hand with the hole in it says, I am unbelievably powerful and I'm unbelievably good and I'm unbelievably committed to you. And that should comfort you. That should comfort you in the middle of going through a life that is really hard. 
to know that he loves you and he is for you and he's working all things for your good. It should arrest you, it should comfort you, and then here's the last thing. It should fortify you. This vision should bolster you, should strengthen you. And here's why. Look at, look at how it ends, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now look, Revelation doesn't always tell you what its symbolism means, but here it does, which is nice. Because it basically says the seven golden lampstands that we talked about earlier are representative of the seven churches, which basically just means every church ever. And where do you see this Jesus, this Son of Man? Where is he in this vision? He's in the midst of the churches. He's with his people. This is him basically saying, I'm with you. I've been with you all along. Look, I don't know if you've ever seen the show The Office, but um, it's become a bit of a... um, a favorite in, in our house. We're going back through and watching all of them right now. And uh, we recently came across the episode called Survivor Man. You remember the episode where Michael Scott, um, he gets kind of shunned from going on the outdoor retreat with Ryan and all of his executive buddies. And so Michael's so sort of put off by this that he wants to go out into the wilderness like Bear Grylls and do a man versus wild thing with my camcorder. And so he goes out into the woods by himself in his suit to sort of spend a few days in the wild and videotape himself. And he sits down and sets up the camcorder. And he's like, well, it's day one. And I brought, I brought along the bare essentials. So I've got a knife and some duct tape. And because you never know when you are going to need to build something like a, a water trapeze or I forget what he says. And so he, he says, man, the sun's really coming down. He's been, like, been in the woods for like four seconds. And so he says, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my knife. And so he's in his suit. You remember, he starts cutting, he starts cutting shorts out of his uh, you know, suit pants. And then he says, you know, I can use this as a kerchief. And so he ties it around his neck and puts it on his head. He's like, I got a hat with extra leg stuff. And so he's shredded his suit. And, you know, of course, in the very next scene, he's duct taped the pants back to it. He's like, it's getting kind of cold now. And so he's walking around with these huge duct tapes on. But if you remember throughout that episode, while he's in the woods, Dwight is sort of with him. And he's like hiding behind trees and protecting him. And at the very end, he sort of makes sure that Michael doesn't eat the poisonous mushroom there at the end. But the, whole, the point is, is that the whole time, Michael Scott's out there suffering, being an idiot, and yet he's got this protection that's with him the whole time, and he, never really, he didn't really know it. He didn't know it until the end. But it was true the whole time that the protection was with him. And look, we, we, I'm going to talk about something a little weird here as we kind of close. But we don't talk about this enough in Christian circles. Basically, we, we don't talk about our imagination enough, as much as we should. If you think about what your imagination is, your imagination can visualize and see something that is true even though you can't see it with your physical eyes. So think about it. If you, if you see a tree, if you go up to a tree outside, your physical eyes can see the trunk, can see the branches, can see the, uh, what are those green things? The leaves. And, but your imagination can actually see something that's true about the tree that your eyes can't see. You can picture the root structure underneath the soil. You can picture the roots kind of extracting the nutrients and kind of running them up the trunk. Your imagination can see something that your physical eyes can't. 
And I know this sounds kind of weird and science fiction-y, but I think it's really biblical. If you could unzip sort of this space-time dimension, right on the other side of the room that we're sitting in, I think you would see Jesus. That he's right here with us, spiritually speaking. And if you can activate your imagination, man, how would you think you would live your life differently if you lived with an awareness that this Jesus, this glorious, holy, aggressively gracious, loving Jesus is with you? Like in the middle of your depression, like in the middle of your heartache, in the middle of the breakup, in the middle of that horrible roommate situation, he's with you. Don't you think that would fortify you and change the way that you live life, strengthen you? Don't you think that you would be bolstered in such a way that that it didn't matter what life threw at you? Look, I'll I'll end here. I've got a two-year-old son, Reed, who got uh, a little fire truck thing for Christmas and he loves it he's obsessed with trucks and fire trucks and the ladder thing on the top snapped off and he you know freaks out and melting down and comes to me and wants me to fix it and it's like it's one of the brakes that's like beyond repair I can't fix it like dude bro I'm sorry I can't I got I got nothing for you he's freaking out now what if it were true although it's not but what if it were true that I had just received an email from a relative saying hey son you know, distant relative has passed away and has inherited, you know, you've got, you've got $5 million to your name now, bro. You just got this much money come in. If that had happened, you know, the ladder breaks, he comes to me and he cries. I'm like, dude, you got $5 million. I just got the email. How would he have responded? He would have been freaking out about the truck. Like, he didn't have the capacity to understand emails and what a million is and what dollars are. Like, he doesn't have the capacity to even understand what I'm saying. And I think you and me are the same way. If you're a Christian tonight, we have a real hard time. We don't have the capacity to really understand (coughs) what it is that we have in Christ. That this vision shows us we have his, we have access to his grace and to his beauty and to his goodness and to his power. And we sit around complaining about our broken little trucks. So let me end where we started. What do you think you need tonight? Like right now, at this point in the semester, what do you need? Because this passage is going to look at you and say, what you need and what I need is to see and to behold that Jesus is way better and way bigger than we think he is. Do you have eyes to see it, though? Let me pray. (coughs) Excuse me. Father... Would you be so gracious as to give us these eyes that we would see our slain and resurrected Lord and Savior right there with us, who has loved us, has given himself for us. Father, I pray that this vision, as we kind of start this um, series and this book, and as we start the semester, I really do pray that it would arrest us tonight, that it would just undo us and, and... cast out any sort of deluded self-assessment that we have about ourselves. But I pray that it wouldn't stop there. I pray that it would also deeply, deeply comfort us, that we would see your love and your grace, and it would actually bolster us with confidence to move out into a world that is hard, into a world that is broken, with a real strength and vitality. Would you do that beginning in my heart, because I so desperately need it, and would you do it in the hearts of these guys here tonight as well? 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.